I got, how many of you were, were here last week and got to, to hear the, the testimony of these three young ladies as they kind of declared their dependence on God? And that was one of the highlights of the six and a half years that I've gotten to be here so far is just the, the baptismal service and especially hearing testimony of how this gospel is more than just a theological concept. How, how when we come to know Jesus and say, you know what, I no longer just want to know about him, I want to know him and I want to follow him. And what we witnessed last week was a public celebration of an internal reality that the entire trajectory of these ladies' hearts and their lives have been radically transformed eternally and, and, and heavenward. Of course, the question that we then ask is, all right, now what? Right? We, we know that because of the cross, we have access to come back into the Father's presence because of grace, because Jesus paid the price the, for the penalty of our sins, so we can be reconciled to God, which is really, really good news. But then what? How do we stay there? And as we looked at last week, and I'm going to take just a few minutes to remind us of what we talked about last week because it's so foundational to everything we're going to talk about this week. What we found is that for at least these Jewish believers who had infiltrated the churches in Galatia, they believed that if Jesus was good, but if you really wanted to stay in relationship with God, something else had to happen. We needed to then submit ourselves to the law of God, to the Mosaic law, and somehow maintain our righteousness through our own efforts. And when Paul heard this, he just went absolutely, categorically, no. Because at the end of the day, the foundation of our entire relationship with God from first step to last breath is grace. As he said in the book of, in the book of Ephesians, he said, it is by grace you have been saved. By faith, not by works. So that nobody, nobody can boast and say, look what I've done. And so if you think you're saved by effort, think again. And what he did is he then pointed to Abraham, the patriarch of all of Judaism, the first one that God had called. And when God called him, it wasn't, he, he wasn't special. He, he hadn't earned God's approval or his attention. He simply was somebody that God said, here's a guy I can use. And he said, Abraham, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave the land that you know. I want you to leave your work and everything that you know and follow me. And if you do, I will make you into a great nation. I'll give you more children than the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. Not only that, but I will, make you, I will bless you and through you I will bless all nations. He was foreshadowing what he would do in sending Jesus Christ, although Abraham couldn't possibly know it at the time. But that was the promise that he gave Abraham. And Abraham chose to follow him. He chose to leave everything he knew, his entire world behind, to follow this God and trust him. And Paul says in the, in the book of Galatians in chapter 3 that we looked at, he says, listen, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now keep this in mind. Abraham's righteousness was not something that he got because he was circumcised. It was not something he got because he followed the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law wasn't given for another 430 years. Abraham's righteousness from the first to the last was based upon his trust in God and his willingness to follow him, to accept that invitation. 
And Paul says in the same way, whether you're Jew or Gentile from birth doesn't matter. You're If you believe God and you choose to follow Jesus' invitation, or you choose to accept it and follow, follow Jesus, then you too are a son or a daughter of Abraham. Hey, Pete, can you turn this off for me? Because I'm a little bit distracted by it. Thank you. I'm, I'm like ADDing out here right now, and I apologize. So... That was Paul's point that he made. And of course, the question then becomes, well, what was the... Thank you very much, Pete. What was the point of the law then in the first place? Why would God give a law if it didn't have any point at all? And Paul said, oh, the law had a point. It just wasn't the point that you thought. You see, Jewish believers, you thought that the law was given to act as a blueprint to kind of show you how to attain your righteousness or at least to maintain your righteousness. And I'm here to tell you that the law was never intended to do that. Just the opposite. The law was there to show you just how incapable you are of maintaining your righteousness. It was there to shine a spotlight on your inability to be perfect, to be holy as he is holy, so that you would ultimately be pointed towards a savior. You would recognize your desperate need for a savior. And he likens the law to a guardian or a tutor, or an instructor. The picture we have there, and it's something that we're not familiar with very much now in this day and age, but in that day and age, when you had estates with with very wealthy, very powerful people, and they had a child that they were raising up, and they knew that this child was going to inherit the entire estate, and would one day be inherit even their their influence in society, these wealthy, powerful families would hire a personal tutor to come in and walk with their child. And this person's job was to train them, to teach them, to discipline them. They were, you take like a a teacher and a, um, like a drill sergeant, all in one. That's what these guardians were. They had complete control over this child, even though that child may one day grow up to have tremendous power and influence in society even though that child would one day grow up and inherit the entire estate, for the season that they were a child, they were under the tutelage of this instructor or this guardian. Does that make sense? And so in Galatians 3, and if you're not there, please turn there with me. In Galatians 3, Paul explains the purpose of the law. I'm just going to read it very quickly to reiterate what we talked about, and then we will keep moving. So he says here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 21, Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe, not those who live perfectly by, by obeying the law. Before this coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until that faith that was to come could be revealed. So the law was our guardian, our tutor, our instructor, until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. The law was there to point us toward Jesus. Now that this faith has come, now that Christ has come for us, we are no longer under a guardian. More specifically, we're no longer under that guardian. We no longer need him because we are saved by grace through faith, not by obeying the law and trying to do good works. And in its place, 
God gives us a different guardian, a different instructor, a different tutor that is radically different than the old one that we had. He gives us his spirit, the same spirit that empowered Jesus throughout all of his ministry, that enabled him to drive out demons, the same spirit that enabled him to walk on water, the same spirit that enabled him to heal broken people, and even to be able to know what was in people's hearts, to have discernment. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is the spirit that lives in each and every one of our hearts when we say yes to Jesus. And this guardian that we have within us is radically different from the old one. Because whereas the old one looks at us and condemns us and says, you are a failure. Because look at all of the things that you have failed to live up to. This new guardian that we have. He may convict us, sure. He may say, listen, as a son, as a daughter of God, you don't want to go down that path. That's not befitting a child of God. But in no way does he condemn us and say, oh, you failed too much. You've fallen too far. If anything, when we hit that impasse where we've fallen flat on our face, the Holy Spirit reminds us that our, that our entire foundation, our entire relationship with God is founded upon grace. From our first step to our last breath, all of it is grace. And then he empowers us to become more and more a reflection of Christ's heart. That's review. Hopefully you remember it. If you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to grab the CD and listen to it. Now, that's all well and good. But unfortunately, Paul recognizes that this, the message of these Jewish Christians who had infiltrated the churches in Galatia has kind of found a footing. And there's this, this sense of superiority that the Jews are preaching that somehow Judaism... And being a Jew is way more prestigious and is way more valuable in God's eyes than being a Gentile. So even though we may all be saved by grace, at the end of the day, Jews are somehow better followers of Jesus and are more valuable citizens of the kingdom of God than a Gentile believer. And Paul wants to speak directly to that. And so now let's keep reading. We're only going to read a couple of paragraphs here today because it's so rich we're going to chew on it this morning. Let's start in verse 26. Paul continues. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and your heirs according to the promise. Now, what I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. And in the same way, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of this world, under the rules and the laws that continue to point us towards Christ. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might, be, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you an heir. Now, I suspect that there are probably some of us in here who are, when, when you hear the word adoption, we talk about becoming a child of God, some of you might be going, oh, wait a minute. 
I thought we're all children of God. I mean, we were all created in his image. Isn't every single man, woman, and child on the face of this planet a child of God? To which I would simply say, no, actually no. True, God created us in his image. And his intention is that we would represent him. But if you go back to Genesis 3, we see something happen. When Adam and Eve take that, took that first bite of fruit and disobeyed God, sin came crashing into his good creation, warped, his, warped their perception of themselves and their perception of God, and ultimately set a wedge between us and our creator God. And so we were born into slavery to sin. And despite the fact that we, as, even as children, may not even recognize what we're doing, we have this natural sin bent. And there's nothing that we can do to break the chains of our bondage or change the circumstances of our slavery by ourselves. Which is why Jesus came to die in the first place. He came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And by dying on the cross, he broke the chains, or at least gave a way to break the chains, by saying, I will take the, pun- the punishment of your choices upon you. I will die in your place, because as Paul mentions in Romans, the wages of sin is death. We have earned death. We all deserve death. And so Jesus died for us, so that we could live in a reconciled relationship with our God. And that's what took place. And so we become adopted into God's family when we say yes to Jesus Christ, when we clothe ourselves, when, the, when his blood washes us clean, we become adopted into his family. And this is why, if you guys have ever read John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten or one and only son, If you've ever kind of kind of tripped up on, well, what does only begotten or one and only mean? It means that Jesus is God's only kind of natural child. We are all adopted into the family through him and because of him. So, yes, God has thousands, millions of sons and daughters. But other than Christ, we are all adopted into his family. Does that make sense? Okay. now let's talk a little bit about adoption for a moment. About five years ago, um, some friends of mine, Brandy and Jesse Gibbs, adopted a little boy from Ghana. His name was Sammy. And he hadn't done anything to earn the right to be adopted. He hadn't been more special than other kids. It, just, it was through a, a number of circumstances, God's spirit impressed upon their heart. They felt called to adopt. And then he, he slowly and surely kind of guided them to find him. And I'm not going to take the time right now to explain that, that long path, but suffice it to say, the Holy Spirit just kind of went, that one right there. And so Brandy and Jesse, God bless you. Brandy and Jesse then spent the next six, eight months surrounding themselves with a prayer group that would support them, raising funds, flying out to Ghana, talking with ministry of, uh, of adoption and all those kind of things, talking with attorneys, you can't even begin to imagine the amount of energy and emotion and prayer and finances that went into making Sammy their son. There's no way he could possibly fathom that. But I was at John Wayne Airport, Kathy and I were, the day that Sammy came home for the first time. And he and Brandy stepped off the the airplane, and this little boy is probably two and a half at the time, eyes just huge as he's looking around this massive, opulent um, you know, airport terminal. 
probably bigger than many buildings he'd ever been in, with all of these people milling about. And then they come down to the, um, the baggage claim. And here's this throng of people with strangers. He's never seen a single one of them, but they're all smiling and they all have balloons and signs that saying, welcome home, Sammy. And he's just kind of going, huh? And he couldn't possibly understand the energy and the emotion and the time and the prayer and, and all of the resources that went into bringing him home and making that a reality. And then I watched him as he walked up to Jesse, whom he met a couple of times, but never as his father. And then he was introduced to Adelie, Brandy and Jesse's daughter, whom he'd never met before. And, and the reality was, on that day, despite the fact that he and Adelie were from such completely diverse backgrounds and had experienced so, much, so many different things in their life, on that day he had just as much right to be called a Gibbs as she did because he was a part of their family for life. And Paul, in the same way, if you look at verse 6, I'm, we're going to just pull out three really tangible things that we realize about our adoption in this brief passage that we looked at this morning. The first thing that we learn about our adoption, can we throw it up? Nope, that, yeah, next one. All right. The first thing that we learn about here is that the old boundary markers no longer define or dictate our value in God's eyes. The old boundary markers no longer dictate our value when God looks at us. And so we read in verse 28 that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now let me, let me be really clear here. Let me tell you what this is not saying. Paul is not suggesting that all of those boundary markers that we tend to use are, are null and void, that they no longer have any bearing whatsoever on our life. It's not like our cultural heritage no longer matters. It's, it's not as if we can simply say, oh yeah, you know, I, it doesn't matter if I'm, you know, I'm wealthy and affluent or if I'm poor living on the street and this no longer has any bearing on my life. It still kind of does. Okay? That doesn't change. And he's not suggesting that there is somehow this you know, disillusion uh, of gender as if now we all become just this one kind of melting pot of we're all the same thing. No, that's not what he's saying, even though there's some in our society today who would probably try to argue that. What he is saying is that the things that we now use to define ourselves, the things that we typically tend to look to to try to put ourselves in hierarchy over one another, I'm Jew, you're just a Gentile, I matter more than you. Oh, I'm affluent, I'm a free man, you are simply a slave, or you, you know, I'm more valuable in God's eyes. Or in a patriarchal society, <clears throat> I'm a male, you're a female, I matter more to God than you do. And Paul's saying, BS. Those things that we typically use to divide and separate and say, I'm more important than you, mean nothing in God's economy. When he looks at us, we are all on the same footing, and that footing is grace from first to last. I, I know that people have asked Brandy and Jesse, hey, um, is it hard to love Sammy the same way you do your, your normal kid? And he's like, they're like, well, Sammy is our normal kid. He's just as much our child as Adelie is, and guess what? We love them both with all of our hearts. 
And I would say the same thing to each of us in here. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter how long you've been following Jesus. It doesn't matter the things you've done in your life. It doesn't matter what your affluence level is, how much money you have in the bank, how much money you give to this church. It doesn't matter if you have a degree or alphabet soup after your name. It doesn't matter what you have done. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your resume. He sees his son and his daughter created in his image, and he loves you more than you could ever possibly fathom, period. That's number one. The things that we, as in a society, tend to divide ourselves over no longer hold bearing when it comes to our value in the kingdom of God. Not saying that those don't influence us or have an effect on how we interact with other people, but when it comes to our relationship with God, null and void. Got it? Number two, God gives us his Holy Spirit. Go ahead and look at verse six of Galatians chapter four. Paul says, because you are sons... God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit replaces that old guardian that we were given to help point us to Jesus. Now that Jesus has come, that old guardian is defunct. He no longer has any right or role in leading our life. Now it's the Holy Spirit that resides within us, that walks with us, that shows us what it looks like to be, to act, to live as a son and daughter of God. It's that Holy Spirit that takes from this word, because I'm not suggesting that we should no longer look at the Ten Commandments and say they have no bearing on our lives. It's still a reflection of God's heart. But what the law tended to do is say, guess what? You're incapable of living up to it. And now what the Holy Spirit does is he takes from God's word, which is a reflection of God's heart. And he just reminds us, listen, as a son of God, you don't want to go down that path. Hey, listen, I know you you feel like you have a right to, to be angry and to hold on to your resentment towards that person. Let it go. Man, do you remember how many times you've been forgiven? Do you remember how much God has forgiven you of? Let it go. And you'll realize in the process that you are freed. Hey, guard your mind. Yes, you have freedom, but do not let your freedom be a cover-up for doing the stuff that you kept finding yourself to because you're running back into slavery. And Jesus died to bring you out of that so you would not be enslaved by the stuff that your flesh cries after. So resist, I know it's hard. And when we stumble, the Spirit's right there to go, your Father loves you. And he's right here with you, so pick yourself up and let's go. Let's walk together. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He walks with us. He encourages us. He reminds us of who we are when the world screams that we have to somehow prove who we are or we have to earn our standing. And he reminds us, no, 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 no. Jesus did all the earning that needed to take place. Now you can just live out of that. So rest in him. Respond to his love. Don't think that you have to earn his love. But the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life is even has an even deeper meaning that's not as clear here in Galatians chapter 4. But it's something that Paul talks about in greater detail in Romans chapter 8. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to throw the the verse up here on the screen in just a moment, unless you want to, Romans chapter 8. 
I just want us to recognize the part that the Spirit plays in our adoption. So we can, throw, can we throw that verse up there? This is Romans chapter 8, verse 14. We read, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So if we allow the Spirit whom God gives to us to guide us, that is a confirmation that we are his sons and his daughters. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are, in fact, God's children. Did you catch that part about how the Spirit himself brings about our adoption? What what that means is this, that when we say yes to Jesus Christ, God fills our heart with his spirit as not just a source of empowerment, but also as a mark of his ownership. This one's mine. And by that spirit's presence in our lives, he begins to lead and guide and direct us. And because of that spirit's presence, it radically changes the way that we approach God. Because when we were slaves to sin, when we were still in bondage, trying to earn our standing with God by our obedience to the law. Just think of that big book that we had this last week. When we lived like that, and you were face to face with the living God, imagine your response. It's one of fear and trepidation. It's one of like, oh, here we go. Here comes punishment. Like, I'm not worthy, right? That cringeworthy kind of feeling a slave gets when they're in front of a master who has all the power of life and death over them. And instead, with the Spirit's presence in our lives and the reminder that we are adopted children, that means that rather than approaching God with this kind of fear and trepidation, waiting for punishment, we can approach him like a child does. A child who runs into the throne room, a very, the very throne room where the king holds everybody's life in, in his hands, and this child runs into the throne room, climbs up onto the throne, and just snuggles down into his daddy's lap. That's what we have the right to do. And when we spend time in prayer, that's what we are doing. We're just going and snuggling in with our Father God. Not only that, but even the way that we interact with and speak to our God changes. Because whereas a servant comes in and goes, what would you like me to do, sir? As you wish, master. Those kind of terms, which are are, are a, you are here, I am here, I'm not worthy, type of language, the Holy Spirit within us brings us to uttering words like Abba, Father. Now that word Abba is an Aramaic term. It means Daddy. And it is without a doubt the single most intimate name for God found anywhere in Scripture. It was a name that Jesus called God. And because of the Spirit's presence in our lives and the fact of our adoption, we have the right to call God our Daddy as well. I think of of Sammy there in the airport that day. Adelie has known Jesse, her father, far longer than, than Sammy had. He'd maybe met him once or twice before. But Sammy had just as much right to call Jesse his daddy as Adelie did because he was just as much his son as Adelie was Jesse's daughter. And we have just as much right to call the creator and sustainer of this universe, our daddy, our father, as Jesus did. 
because we're part of the family. So that the normal things that we use to to separate ourselves have no bearing on our value in God's eyes. He loves us equally. And we have been given the Holy Spirit as our guide, our instructor, our tutor, in what it looks like to now live as a member of God's family. But the beauty of this, if you go back to Galatians chapter 4, verse 7, we'll come to the third thing that Paul points out here that is just really, really powerful and exciting and and probably confusing to some of us. I love verse 7 because it kind of sums up everything we've talked about. He says, so you are no longer a slave like you used to be, but you're God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. In, in Roman culture, when you adopted a child, it was typically not, you, you typically didn't adopt a child because you were hoping to just want to nurture a child into adulthood. You would adopt a child because you wanted that individual to carry on your name. You were concerned about who will take care of my estate. I don't have any natural born children of my own, so I'm going to adopt this man and he will ultimately, he, he will give away his old name, his old values, all of his debts nullified. He becomes a brand new person. The old is gone. This new has come. He is now a member of my household irrevocably because you could not unadopt somebody you adopted. Beautiful picture of the security that we have in our father's love. And now this individual would carry on the family name. They would inherit all that was part of the family estate, including all of the influence that they had. Got it? So what do we, as sons and daughters of God, forgiven for our sins and by grace ushered into being a part of God's family, what do we stand to inherit? And I want to point out here that we actually taste the first fruits of all of these things I'm about to mention, but we will one day in eternity kind of experience them in their fullness but we still taste the first fruits of each of these things here and now. You'll see in just a moment what I mean. There are three things. I know I could probably pull out dozens. I'm going to pull out three things that we inherit as adopted sons and daughters of God. The first thing we inherit is that we get an eternal father. We get an eternal father. And each of us have had fathers. Some of them didn't really know how to be a father. Some of them weren't really even around. Some of them were phenomenal fathers, but even they were flawed and imperfect and and were an imperfect reflection of our Father God. And when we talk about God our Father, we tend to view him through the lens of our earthly fathers. And I just want to remind us that those are imperfect pictures and sometimes we have to try to, to pull away some of the imperfections, you know, like if you had a father who tended to be very strict and, and, and judgmental, one of those fathers where you felt like you kind of had to earn their approval, we have to unlearn some of those things when we come to our Father God and recognize He has loved us, so out of that we can respond. But the reminder of this is we have a Father who loves us more, more perfectly than we could ever possibly fathom. I'll come back to that point in a second. The second thing that we inherit is we inherit an eternal family. What Sammy may not have realized the day that he was adopted that is that he didn't just get a new mom and dad. He actually got a new sister, Adelie. 
And in the same way, when we say yes to Jesus Christ, we don't just get a father in heaven and, and Jesus Christ is our big brother. We, in, we become part of a very, very large family that spans not just this entire globe, <clears throat> but the entire history of mankind. Every man, woman, and child who places their faith in Jesus Christ, calls him their Lord and Savior, is part of this family. And yes, at times, this family, like any other family, is dysfunctional. At times, we spend more time bickering and fighting over asinine things than we do loving one another and being a representative of Jesus Christ to those who have not yet been adopted but whom Jesus Christ died for. At times, we spend more of our energy fighting over who, you know, let's try to seal that person out of that community over to here. Guys, we are not in the process or interested in stealing sheep because we're not in competition with other churches because they're part of our family. And the beautiful thing I've seen in Costa Mesa in the last couple of years is that the churches have stopped being in competition with one another and have started just going, how can we, as a unified family of Jesus Christ, represent his heart? How can we work together? And I hope that we will continue to do that. And if you guys have ideas, it's not just for, hey, let's keep this just for Lighthouse so we can somehow make us look good. How can we use this to advance God's kingdom irrespective of who gets the credit other than Jesus Christ? He's the only one who deserves that. So we get a new family. And I hope that we will continue to learn what it looks like to act like we are family. Thirdly, we get, an, we get a new father, we get an eternal father, we get an eternal family, and thirdly, we get an eternal home. When Brandy and Jesse brought Sammy home, they adopted him not because he was worthy, not because he had earned it, but because they had chosen to adopt him and because they loved him. The Holy Spirit did something in their hearts where they just were burdened for this little boy. And his security was not dependent upon his efforts or upon his ability to be worthy to be their son. His security was based solely off of their decision to adopt him. They had made a both legal and emotional covenant with him that he would be their son. And yet, he didn't feel very secure in that love, at least not completely. For the first couple of years, Brandy and Jesse from time to time would go into their, his room and they would be cleaning up and they would find little stashes of bread rolls that he had eaten. Maybe he'd eaten half of it and stuffed the other half in his pocket and then you know, kind of squirreled it away in his room on the off chance that they would stop feeding him. Remember, this little boy at two and a half, all he had known up to that point was every authority figure in his life disappeared. All he knew was that at some point the other shoe may drop and they may simply go away. So I got to take care of myself. I got to be prepared for the day that the love stops and I'm no longer welcome here. What Sammy didn't realize was that his standing in that household was not dependent upon himself. It wasn't something he'd earned and it wasn't something that he could lose. His standing in that household was based solely upon his mother and his father's commitment to him. There's this verse, uh, not a verse, there's this quote I found by a, a guy named Lee Strobel, if you can throw it up there for a second. He says, faith is only as good as the one in whom it's invested. 
Faith is only as good as the one in whom it's invested. In, in other words, I can tell you, I have complete faith that when I tell my sons to go clean their room and make their beds, that it's, it'll be done. And I can say, yep, their room is clean and their beds are made. And then I walk in and it's a pigsty. Because quite honestly, they got preoccupied with something else. I get it. But for Sammy, his faith was on, am I worthy? And so he didn't feel very secure when in reality his security came from his parents. And in the same way, we as sons and daughters of God tend to put our faith in, am I worthy? How am I doing? Have I gone to church enough? Have I tithed enough? Have I kind of controlled my thought life enough? And that is a very slippery slope. When we approach God out of this belief that we have to somehow earn it through being righteous and therefore earn our standing with him, that is a very slippery slope. And it's basically like getting on to a a hamster wheel and committing ourselves to running and running and running and running for the rest of our lives. And when we stumble, because we will, not if, those feelings of insecurity come slamming into us. Oh my gosh, God, are you still there? God, do you even notice me? God, do you love me? Have I screwed up too much? The message of the gospel that Paul is hammering home here is that our security is not in ourselves. It is in the one who called us to follow him. The one who made a way for us to become his sons and daughters. Our standing with God has less to do with our faithfulness than it does with his faithfulness. And that is good news because we're going to blow it. We're going to stumble. We're going to fall woefully short, even as we are in this process of being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. But our Father God says, I love you. We established this relationship in grace and we will maintain this relationship in grace. Now, that is not freedom to live any way that we want. We're now part of the family. So let's live like it. But stop worrying that I'm going to simply disown you or unadopt you if you don't live up to my expectations. That's the heart of the gospel. And that is the good news <clears throat> that Paul wanted to protect from the, the Jewish Christians who were trying to say, we got to earn it. We have to earn the right to remain in God's good graces. And then Paul will, from here, spend the rest of chapter four basically saying one thing You are a son, you are a daughter of God, washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. End of story. So live like it. Don't run back to the legalism and the slavery out of which God brought you. Don't go back to trying to earn your standing through your efforts. Rest in him. And all that you do, make that a response to God's love, not a prerequisite to it. End of story. So I had house church. My family. Right? And that's probably the best term I can use to describe us. We are a family following Jesus together. We're going to do it imperfectly. We're going to make mistakes. I am up here. I'm the first to say I am, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, not because I've got it all together, but because I'm a sinner desperately in need of a Savior. And I thank, you, thank him so much for loving me as I am and for the Holy Spirit continuing to work out my salvation and continuing to work out my being set apart. And we're all in this process together. 
Now, if there, if there is anybody in here who has yet to take hold of this gift of grace, may I remind you, it is a gift, not something you earn. So it doesn't matter where you were last night. It doesn't matter what you've done this week. It doesn't matter whether you're worthy. By your own efforts, you're not worthy, but none of us are. But because of God's love, he makes you worthy. He says, I want to spend eternity walking with you. And so if you have yet to take hold of that gift of grace, it's as easy as saying, Jesus, I need you. Come into my life. Have your way with me and show me what it looks like to follow you. I want to stop trying to do this by my own efforts. Holy Spirit, come into my life and begin to clean house. Have your way with me. You can pray that on your own. You can pray that with somebody else. <clears throat> I'll be in the back this morning if, if you want to pray it with me. I'm going to invite a couple of our, our elders and families, Lee and Mary, if you guys would be up here, and Randy, you know, if you and Patty would come up here. Um, we just want to be available for prayer. We're going to spend a couple of minutes now worshiping our Father together as a family, just thanking him for his goodness. If during this time you want to, sometimes the posture of our bodies helps lead our hearts. If you want to come up here, there's some space to kneel down. If you just want to close your eyes and have a conversation with God in your seat, not sing the words on the screen, that's fine. But let's respond now to our Father who doesn't accept the worthy. He makes us worthy. He turns sinners into saints. Jesus, thank you for loving us. And we give you our lives We thank you that we get to be part of your family. Jesus, thank you for paying the price so that we could be part of your family. And now we as your sons and daughters just want to give this sacrifice of praise to you. Jesus, in your name, amen.